The rest of you, would you please stand for the reading of God's word out of Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech, and people moved eastward. They found a plain in Shahar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower and the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they began, they began to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. For them, Come, let us go down and continue, confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them um, from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages, the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, as I begin today's sermon, Lord God, may every bit of me, every bit of my agenda fade away and every bit of you remain. To you be the glory, Lord God, in the church and in your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, um, this wasn't really the plan this week, honestly, to preach on the Tower of Babel. Um, uh, Pastor Alyssa was, uh, was saying she didn't know I was preaching on this this week. I didn't know I was preaching on this this week. Like last week was supposed to be kind of like a break between series, and I had another series in mind. And um, I started doing my Bible reading, reading just further on in Genesis. And then God started like, I mean, like confirmation after confirmation, like he practically took the pen out of my hand and wrote, you're preaching on the Tower of Babel this week. Um, in addition, I didn't know the kids were, were going to be teaching on it. And then um, I had a friend who posted a picture that said, that's a nice tower you're building. It'd be a shame if somebody, blah, 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 and, you know, the different languages. And I had a number of other things that just really fell into place. The Holy Spirit's prompting as well. The next major event in the book of Genesis chronicles the Tower of Babel. Babel is um, more, more than just how we came across different languages. It's about a problem that's at the very heart of humanity that even perfect understanding does not solve. In the days of Babel, everyone had the same language and could understand one another, yet there was evil. So let's fill in the place between Noah and Nimrod. After the flood, God makes a covenant with his people, with Noah, with those who are there, that they are to spread out. It's the same, it's the same commandment he makes with um, Adam and Eve that in according with the covenant, they were to spread out and to multiply. Interesting enough, when the Lord ascends to the Father, he gives his people, the disciples, the same commandment. Go into all the world and make disciples of all men. At the ascension, he says that, we will be his, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the outermost ends of the earth. God's command, go out, multiply. Our big theme this last year has been Become greater disciples so that you can make disciples. Therefore, fulfilling the Lord's command. That each and every one of us should have somebody we're discipling in our life and somebody who is discipling us. 
We saw that command today. Now we find out automatically, almost right away, the people of the earth disobey God because they do not spread out. They decide we are going to stay right here. So let's, let's go a little further on with Noah's own kids. Noah himself has three sons. The youngest was name was Ham. So I imagine he was probably born between like that, that time of breakfast and lunch where you're like really hungry. Like he was probably this close to being called venison. Um, good for Ham. Ham was uh, the youngest son. Um, he is the grandfather of Nimrod. And Ham is known, because, known for something very lewd and terrible. His uh, father, Noah, um, planted grapes and vineyards. And from that, he made wine and got drunk. And he was, he was laying down in his tent naked. And uh, his youngest son, Ham, saw him naked. Instead of trying to preserve his father's dignity, thought it was funny and thought he'd grab his other two brothers so he could make fun of his father with his brothers. The response of his two brothers actually tell us a whole lot, which is this. You don't get to blame somebody else for your own actions. You always have a choice. They don't go in, start making fun of their father. They see what's going on, and they decided we are going to choose honor instead of dishonor. We are going to make sure we do what is right in the eyes of the God who just drowned the world for licentiousness. And they turn their back so they do not see their father, and they have a garment between them. They put it on their father. When Noah wakes up, he curses Ham, that Ham's people will be the servants of servants. Ham's two brothers refuse to dishonor their father. Ham decides to dishonor his father, and there is consequences to this. We see these consequences almost right away because history repeats itself. In the times of Noah before the flood, the hearts of men were continually evil. In those days, there were giants, the Nephilim. Giant is rightly understood more than just people who were really big, like Andre the Giant, but really, it was about their attitude, their personality. They were violent. They were despicable. And they were praised and glorified for their violence and despicable nature. And the people, they led the people in their rebellion. After the flood, we have somebody who arises named Nimrod, who's the grandson of Ham. After the flood, Noah's sons do spread out. They have sons of their own. The command was kept for a small while. But Ham's grandson, Nimrod, he has a different plan. He founds the city and nation of Babylon, and there the people gathered instead of spreading out. Um, Nimrod was like one of the Nephilim reborn. In the city he founded, Babylon, um, the people first tried to reject the command of God not to spread out, but just to get there and to fortify. As we talk about the Tower of Babel, as we talk about um, the founding of the city of the first city of Babylon, Babylon will be mentioned three different times in the scriptures, possibly different places, possibly the same place. This is the first time Babylon is mentioned as the city, the tower is Babel. Um, the founder of the city is Nimrod. Now, Nimrod's an interesting word, right? Because many of us understand Nimrod to be an insult. You know, if I called somebody today, and I'm not going to name a name or anything like that, I'm like, hey, you Nimrod, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say you're an idiot, you're, you know, you're foolish. It's like, how did, how did Nimrod, Nimrod's described as a mighty warrior and hunter before the Lord, how did Nimrod become an insult? You know, I wondered this, and I, I looked it up this week, and I thought there was going to be some great profound reason. Maybe it was tied. It's not really tied. It's sort of tied to the person Nimrod. Um, but actually, you know who we have to thank for this is Bugs Bunny. 
That's as old as the insult of Nimrod is. Because in one of the Looney Tunes, him and Daffy Duck are being chased by Elmer Fudd. And Bugs Bunny makes a comment, um, calls Elmer Fudd Nimrod, ironically, because Nimrod was a great hunter before the Lord, and Elmer Fudd is not, so he's kind of making fun of him. But here's the thing, Looney Tunes are for kids, and what kid understands that reference? So everybody just figured, oh, Nimrod must mean somebody who's stupid, like Elmer Fudd. That's how we got Nimrod. He is uh, Nimrod. The name Nimrod... um, has now come to mean has now come to mean a great hunter since Nimrod is identified as a mighty hunter in Genesis 10:9 which I'll read for you right now he was a mighty hunter before the Lord therefore it is said like Nimrod a mighty hunter before the Lord um, however the name probably has a different meaning in the original language some scholars posit that Nimrod actually came from a Semitic root a language similar to ancient Hebrew the root appears to be a word roughly Romanized to medred, meaning to rebel. Because of this, Nimrod is often thought to have been a rebel against the Lord. The phrase in the Bible that says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord might more literally be translated, he was a mighty hunter to the face of the Lord in opposition. As in he relied on his own abilities to say, I don't need God I can do it myself. I don't need God. In fact, I'll show you, God, I don't have any need of you because I am a great hunter in and of myself. He founds many cities with the same kind of attitude. You know, we still have that that same kind of vernacular today. If I said I had to get in somebody's face, you know what I'm talking about. Or if you grew up in the 90s, in your face. Nimrod, he was in the face of God. He was in rebellion against God. That came from, uh, the uh, research there came from Melissa Root of Crosswalk.com. Even today in America, we have the same insult, in your face. If I talk about having to get in someone's face, you know what I'm talking about. Sure, Nimrod was a mighty hunter, but he was also in God's face about it. How many people are the same? We don't thank God and acknowledge God for the blessings. We say they came from our own hand. You might wonder why I have this book under here, other than it messing where my water's at, and then I have to like reach around. Um, this is uh, the histories, the works of Josephus. He was a first century Jewish slash Roman historian, and he wrote the, he was commissioned to, commission's a fun word, more like he had to do it, um, a history of the Jewish people. And I thought what he had to say about Nimrod was incredibly enlightening. In fact, I read it this week. This is one of the proofs where I was just like, I like stopped, I'm like, Whoa, that's insight. Let me read it to you. For when they flourished with a numerous youth, God admonished them again to send out colonies. Remember, they were told to go, send out, spread, multiply, and they decided no. He admonished them to send out colonies, but they, imagining the prosperity they enjoy was not derived from the favor of God, but supposing that their own power was the proper cause of the plentiful condition they were in, did not obey him. Nay, they added to this their disobedience to the divine will, the suspicion that they were therefore ordered to send out separate colonies that being divided asunder, they might be more easily oppressed. So their fear is if we go out, there may be other people who might bully us. So we're just going to stick around here and we're going to be the bullies. Let me read on here. Now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, 
the son of Noah, a bold man and a great strength of hand. He, he pursued them not to ascribe it to God as if it was though his means they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured them that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into constant dependence upon his power. He also said that he would revenge he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again, for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach, and that he should avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. Um, I hope you caught that, because it's the same way today. It's the same way of all tyrannies and all things. Because you can't, you can't be a tyrant over a people who fear God because they won't fear you. So what you have to do is that he made them dependent, constantly dependent on his power. When you stop thinking, my food, my shelter, all of my provision comes from the Lord. Instead, it comes from either myself or it comes from a strong man, a strong woman. You no longer have the fear of the Lord. You have a fear of man. And if man should decide to take that away from you, oh, no wonder we're seeing such a great falling away because man has threatened to take away his gadgets his social media, and all the things that people are constantly wanting. I, I came across that and I was like, wow, that, that gives me a new insight into Genesis chapter 11. Now, this is extra biblical. It's not the word of God. Josephus is just a historian. And if there's any conflict, go with the word of God. Do not go with Josephus. But I thought that was an interesting perspective on this because we see here that they, that they did decide they did not want to venture out lest their name should perish from the face of the earth, but they want to make a name for themselves. And I'm like, that really, that really clicks in, this idea that I'm either going to trust in myself or I'm going to trust in the collective. It's a great mirror. It's a great marriage between individualism and collectivism to the damnation of one's soul. To trust in myself alone or to trust in the government or whomever you want to say the culture. You know, this is the scary thing is that we see so much of this today. This should be our message to this world right now is that this world has nothing for us. We should not, we should not want the things of this world over the things of the Lord. Or more readily say to want the Lord more. When 9-11 happened, um, do you know what most people did? Most people went to church. If you went to a major city, you saw billboards, you'd see billboards that say, pray for us. I remember in Dubuque, they had one that went up um, for the longest time. It's a very Catholic town. So um, this uh, billboard's been up for a long time. It said, Mary, pray for us. And there was this thing. People went to their houses. They went with family. They hugged their kids. They, there was this idea that, that we are not, that we can be touched. That was the great thing that 9-11 burst for us in America is that things can happen. We are not just protected from all the world's woes, but we need the Lord. And so people came to church in droves. But what happened two, three years ago when COVID happened? People stopped going to church. And some people have never returned to church. A lot of people who, who, who had been like, yeah, it's the most important thing in my life, have not even returned to church the last three years. And what has been the messaging during COVID? We're in this together. We got this. We're building our city. And we're going to make a tower so high the floods can't reach it. And then we see that all of this striving, what does it amount to? Look at right now what's happening in Canada, in Australia, in America. 
go to the grocery store today, you'll see those prices are going up and up and up. Yet we still have people who want to make us dependent on their power so that we don't have the fear of God. Last week I preached about Noah and the ark. The plan was to make a break from uh, the series I was doing to go into another series, um, but God had other other ideas. So this week was time for me to come up with another series or one one-off sermon. I was just reading the next part of Genesis, and then all of a sudden I was bombarded with confirmations that I needed to preach on the Tower of Babel. One of them was almost like God taking the pen once again out of my hand and writing it on my desk. When it comes to the ark and the tower, they are very similar but from different perspectives. The ark, the great flood, was God's plan for salvation for mankind. The tower is man's plan for salvation for himself. And we see how one utterly fails while the other one stood. So this, so this morning, I've broken this up. Last week, it was about the ark, the dove, and the rainbow. This week, it is the city, the tower, and the bow of Nimrod. So let's get into this, verses 1 through 4, um, the city versus the ark. The ark was God's plan for salvation in the middle of the storm. The waters rose, the waves crashed, but the ark stood fast and floated. The people in the Bible that we just read were wanting the same thing because they did not believe God when he said he would not flood the earth again. You'll notice that in the city and in the tower, they, they instead of using mortar, they used, um, they used tar. In fact, I think in uh, another translation, it has, um, I'll find the word in a second here, which is a mixture between tar and pitch. Pitch was what God told Noah to use on the ark to make it waterproof. And you see the blasphemy there, right? That they're using God's ideas to try to mock him. And, and it's actually not in my notes. That's what we see today. People will say, well, God's immoral. All these things are bad in the scriptures. And, and the question is, by what standard are you going by? So you're going to use the standard of God to try to mock God? Well, that's what they did in the Tower of Babel. It's just history repeating itself. This is about a plan of salvation. The city, the, the Babylon, the city was a plan of salvation. They may, may or may not have feared another flood, but they were afraid of being scattered. Afraid and hated God for the command to scatter. Verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read it again. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Sahar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone, uh, brick for stone, and uh, verdamin, there we go, that's the word, verdamin, uh, for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we disperse over the face of the whole earth. This was their plan for salvation, to make a name for themselves. There are many competing plans for salvation. They didn't trust that God would protect and provide for them, so they stayed in what they thought was safety, and they fortified their position. It's the common mistake when you're playing risk. <laughs> right? Someone's like, I got Australia. I'm going to stay in Australia. Not a winning strategy. But, you know, competing plans of salvation. There's so many competing plans of salvation. You come across a completing plan for salvation when you answer the question, things, things will be good if. And if your answer isn't revival, people coming to Jesus, you have a competing plan for salvation. Physical salvation or spiritual salvation. There are a lot more than just one competing plan for salvation. 
if we just vote the right guy in, then we'll save America. For some, education is their Lord and Savior, and don't you dare say anything against it. If people just could understand each other better, but we have people who understood each other perfectly. We had one language, and they still had sin. They still were disobedient to God. Probably when I think of the most clear aspect of, of another plan for salvation from a secular point of view, I have to say the, the best one that comes to my mind is Star Trek. I was talking with my sister-in-law yesterday um, where we were talking with her, and she said, I like Jason. He has all these nerd um, references, but there are different ones, and here's a whole other one. Um, you don't have to know anything about Star Trek to know what I'm getting at here. Gene Rottenberry was the, was the creator of Star Trek. And um, FYI, I'm not bashing Star Trek. You can go into my office, and I got the Enterprise and Defiant in there. Um, but anyway, he had a view of the future. His view of the future was through science and technology, man would make himself into an angel. He would make himself perfect. All of when, Once you get to a post-scarcity society, then people would have, their, their, their better angels of their nature would take over. No longer would there be strife. No longer would there be war. This is known as future perfect when it comes to science fiction. And it's so boring, it would move you to tears. That's why you won't see this in actual Star Trek episodes, because that's really boring if everybody's just perfect and they're just going to find those backwards planets to teach them the ways of humanity. But it is another form of salvation that through just science, technology, and knowledge, we will become perfect. This is honestly what is preached in the secular world, in colleges, schools, and in everywhere. They won't say Star Trek, but the idea is when they teach your kids morals, they're teaching it from a secular point of view that you could somehow... See, this is the hard thing. And then when our world comes up across somebody who's genuinely evil, they're not misunderstood. They're not doing it because they were bullied. They just wanted to see people hurt. They don't know what to do with it. We try to make excuses. We, we see what would happen. We see what happened in, in Newtown, Connecticut. And, and people want to say, oh, it's because he had autism because of all these things. So many people have the same things. They don't do the same thing. It's from the evil in his heart that he acted out. It's a different it's a different plan of salvation, and it's so lacking. For others, it's their meditation. For others, it's their exercise or workout. It's ideologies like moral therapeutic um, deism. It's objectivism. It's the myriad of critical theories. Basically, anything you need to add or replace God's salvation is a city of Babylon. They will keep us from scattering and falling away. We will make a name for ourselves. We are building a kingdom one way or another. We're building our own kingdom. We're building the kingdom of this world, of this culture. We're building God's kingdom. The, the, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of ourselves is toppled so easily. But God's kingdom lasts forever. It's a different gospel. A different gospel isn't always another religion. It's not always a Christological or um, theological heresy. It's also anything that you need to be complete and safe and known. And that is what we read in the scripture here, is they thought they needed this to be complete, to be safe, and to be known. C.S. Lewis said, Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The Tower of Babel, the story of Babylon, it is that in a nutshell, is... We want to be safe. We want to be known. We want to be prosperous. We just don't want God with it. 
It says in, uh, verse, in verse 2 that they came from the east. Many commentators make a lot of the people who the, the people came from the east. Because what is in the east in the Old Testament? Well, we know it's in, not in the east, it's Eden. In fact, there's a phrase called East of Eden. And what that, that is just a phrase that was used earlier on in American history that just means this land of stru- um, trial and strife. Uh, to be east of Eden, um, cast out into the utter darkness, basically. In the Old Testament, you have two great cities. One is not so much a city, but it's Eden, it's paradise. The other is Babylon. The paradise of God versus the paradise of man. Consider for the moment the words of God when he visits this city. He says that they are capable of anything. You can see that, and rightfully so, that they're capable of creating anything, but you can also see it in a way that is further backed up in Revelation when we get to the end of the book of they're capable of any type of sin as well. We wonder, why does God confuse their languages, make them confused right here? Because if he didn't, their evil would grow at such a rate, the end would need to come. Because God will shorten the days towards the end, lest the very elect be deceived. So in God, his mercy, he confuses their languages to stave off the end so that we have a chance to be born and saved and brought into his kingdom as well. These people come from east of Eden. Um, with, the, with their creativity comes also a, create, a potential for destruction. If we want to see what, un, what, if we want to see what unified man is capable of, we can flip through our Bibles to the very end and read about another Babylon who is, who is on many waters and drunk on the blood of the saints. This is a hatred for God. This city was not for God's glory, and that's kind of like a duh, right? But look at what they say it's for. It's to make a name for themselves. To make a name for ourselves. They don't want God. They hate God. Unbelievers to this day do. Anyone who truly wants to build a name for themselves also hates God. In John's gospel, this is clear by the very words of Jesus Christ himself. In John 3, we all know John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that who shall ever believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then a lot of people will say, well, what about the next verse where it says that I have not come into the world to condemn the world, but through me the world might be saved? Amen. Absolutely. But if you're trying to use that to say that you don't need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, you're dead wrong because let's continue reading. In verse 18, it says that uh, Jesus Christ says that anybody who does not believe him is already condemned. Let's get to 19. 19, Read 19 out of context. People will be like, that's not very Christ-like, but these are the very words of Christ. And this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than the light. They weren't indifferent to darkness or unaware of darkness. They loved darkness rather than light because the deeds, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. Go on Twitter, type out right now, or go on Facebook. You don't believe in God because you hate him. And you have a lot of people who call themselves Christians who say, that's not very Christ-like. What Christ is saying right here is that they hate the light. Before we knew Christ, we, we hated him. We showed our disdain for him and our myriad of sins. That was a hard reality. When I was saved, that's what God spoke to me through my sins. And to realize then that he still loved me, that even though I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me, that makes grace amazing. Because I don't earn it. I didn't strive for it. He gave it to me. Everyone that is evil hates the light 
and does not want to come into the light for the fear that his deeds will be exposed. Not indifferent, but has not, not going their own way. They hate the light. The city is for their fame, not God's. Once again, there are three Babylons in the scripture. We have this city. We have historical Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was the um, king of that nation. And then we have mystery Babylon in Revelation. In verse 4, which I read to you, we have the tower. And I've linked the tower with the dove because both of them are salvation in a drowned world. Now, I'm partially taking that from Josephus's comments on that they were going to build a tower so high that if God were to drown the world again, they would be above it. And what a sad thing. I mean, it's such disbelief in God. They see the rainbow and they're like, I don't believe it. God's going to drown the world anyway, so let's build a tower. But they'd build a tower for their own fame, for their own notoriety. The dove was for Noah, his salvation in a drowned world. It went out first, finding only water and death and came back. The second time it comes back with an olive branch, something that would henceforth be known as a symbol of peace. The power, um, the power reaches up to heaven and is the tower. Uh, sorry, the tower reaches up to heaven and is built with pitch. The ark was made from pitch to be their salvation in a drowned world. What is the purpose of this tower? The scripture doesn't really say other than they wanted to make it to reach to the heavens. Josephus seems to believe that it was part of Nimrod's hubris, that is pride reaching to the point of uh, offense to God, um, Nimrod's hubris to revenge humanity on God. Whatever the, sta- whatever the stated purpose, the ultimate purpose is plain. It is what humans have done since the garden. They want the things of God without relationship with God. They don't ask God for the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. They take the, knowledge, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. We used to say in evangelism classes, when we do our little questions for people, we'd say, do you want to go to heaven? And most everybody says, yes. You know, ACDC wants to go to heaven, despite whatever songs they sing. Everybody wants to go to heaven. The question is, do you want God to be there when you get there? In the Tower of Babel, their answer was, no, we don't. We want to make our own way to heaven. We don't want God's stairway to heaven. We want our tower to heaven because when we get there, we don't want God to be there. Josephus' um, understanding of it was the idea was that they were going to attack God. That's ridiculous. You know, something, if all of humanity was united against God, let me, let me add to that. If every angel, every demon, and all of humanity was united against God, if every creature that lived or ever lived in heaven and earth and under the earth and hell and heaven, all of them allied against God. They would have as much chance of defeating God. And actually, they would have much less of a chance of defeating God as a small little toddler would have against Mike Tyson in his prime in a fair fight. I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the tower. That's Tower of the Babylon in a nutshell as well, is that they thought they were so big and bad. And all God does is just confuses their languages a little bit. And they're like, well, I guess we're not building the tower anymore. I don't want to learn sign language. Do you? No, I don't. Let's just go somewhere else. Of course, they can't speak to each other. So that's anachronistic, but whatever. Um, they, they think that they're going to they're going to revenge themselves on God or whatever. But, you know, really what it is, is they want heaven without God. Everybody wants to go to heaven, even ACDC, but not everybody wants God to be there when they get there. That's the purpose of the tower reaching to the heavens, is to attain heaven without God. There's a, there was a movie in the 90s called What Dreams May Come. It was 
That, that line is from a line in, in Shakespeare's um, Hamlet. And in the movie, it was with Robin Williams. I hate this movie so much. Um, it's terrible. It's not like it's vile. Maybe it is vile. I don't remember. I just remember the awful feeling after I was done watching it. The idea in it that Robin Williams dies and he goes to heaven. And in heaven, you don't even look like yourself. You look like your hang-up you had in your last life. And uh, you, uh, you, you just do anything you want. It's just whatever your heart's desire is. You want to fly. You want to run really fast. Whatever. And uh, Cupid Gooden Jr.'s in it as well. I'm going to spoil it for you so you don't watch it. Um, that's his like son who had died early in the, earlier in his life, and uh, and he's trying to kind of teach him to um, to understand heaven. So Robin Williams asks, "Where is God?" And Cupid Gooden Jr.'s character says, "We don't know. He's up there somewhere, yelling at us, not understanding why we can't hear him." And I'm like, this sounds like the worst thing I could imagine. To imagine that I would die and the one I loved and longed for would not be there. I wouldn't want that heaven. I wouldn't want a heaven without God. I remember after I was done watching, I was like, this is the worst movie I've ever seen in my life because that entire concept is horrible. But that is what natural humankind wants. And so in the, in the movie, and uh, in the movie, if you, uh, you can go back to earth, get reincarnated, and you just kind of go through this cycle. And I'm like, tell when? A thousand lifetimes of hangups, of hurts, with no one to wipe every tear from your eye? That is hell. But that is what natural humankind wants, is, a, is heaven without God. And that is the message of the tower. It speaks of much less good message than the dove. Finally, the bow of Nimrod versus the rainbow. Let me reread five through nine for you. And the Lord came down to see the, see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have, and they all, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they proposed to do will be impossible for them come let us go down and there confuse their language so that they um so they may not understand one another's speech so the lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left and they left off the building of the city therefore um its name is called babel because the lord confused the languages of all the earth and from uh, and from there the lord dispersed them all over the faces of the earth the bow of nimrod i was surprised to find are not is not in the scripture it is referenced in a lot of things and a lot of different in, in the huns actually have a have a tradition of the bow of nimrod and every statue he has a bow but there's actually no bow in the scripture. And um, the Lord really saved me from a, a, making a stupid mistake last week because I was remembering this line was as they were building the tower, um, they were saying, who can, who can bend the bow of Nimrod? And I was going to relate that to something in the rainbow. And actually that's not in the scripture. It was from that really old, not really old movie. It was a Technicolor movie called The Bible. Um, awesome eyeliner everywhere. It was great. Um, not in the scripture, but so when I'm talking about the bow of Nimrod, I'm really talking about the arrogance of the people. What I mean by the bow of Nimrod is the arrogance of those who built the city and the tower, the pride to make their own name instead of God's. It's pride over love, pride instead of love. 
People have no problem, it's the people who have no problem crushing underfoot others for their own pride. There are two different messages. Nimrod's bow, as I have mentioned earlier, was in the face of God. He was a mighty hunter in God's face. Its message and the message of the people was war. It was mockery of God's offer of peace. The symbol of the rainbow has become, has become the bow of Nimrod. Where the rainbow says peace, it was, war, uh, it, was, it was peace and to wait for the prince of peace. The bow of Nimrod says, we don't need it. We would rather have war than salvation. We have made our own salvation. Verses 5 through 9, you know what I think is amazing here? God gets his way. God doesn't respect their decision. God gets his way because God's way was for them to spread out and multiply. And they were like, no, and God's like, too bad. You're doing it anyway. Sometimes we think our will is greater than God's will. That's what, Nim, that's what Nebuchadnezzar, I'm with Nimrod, Nebuchadnezzar, another king of Babylon would, would think. And then God makes him a wild man for a number of years, eating grass, naked. Once again, I always love that picture in my head. Like, what do you do if there's like an envoy from Egypt? You're like, who's, who's that madman streaking everywhere, eating grass? Oh, that, that's our king. So uh, what about this trade deal we've been talking about? Um, after he comes back to his senses, he says that the, the Lord is God and, and no one can frustrate his plans. And that's what we see right here. God doesn't like, okay, make your, make your tower. No, he, he has a plan and no one can stay his hand. God does what he wants. I was going to call this sermon um, one way or another because I'm on this like 80s music kick, but um, I didn't. We, in verses 5 through 9, we see how much more powerful God is than even a united humanity. In fact, if all of humanity, all of the angels, heaven, hell, and earth united against God, they would have as much chance or less of a chance than a toddler fighting prime of his life, Mike Tyson. God visits their city, and he sees what they are doing. There, um, there are cities that God just nukes. There are ones where he sends confusion. There are ones where he sends an army to conquer them. I could go on and on and on. But this judgment of God almost seems light. He just makes it so they can't understand each other. And this is actually a mercy with the curse. Beyond that, even we, have, beyond that, we even have to recognize that God gets what he wants and no one can stop him. These people didn't want to scatter. They didn't want to multiply like God commanded. But at the end, here we see them doing it anyway. Nimrod, like a future king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, would find out the Lord is God, and he does what he wants. In, in, this, section, in this section of the scripture, you might be thinking, is God saying that, that unity is bad? Like, it would be, it'd be wrong for humanity to be unified. Well, well, not at all. It just matters what you're unified behind. We'll read in Revelation, once again, of another Babylon where the people are unified, and atrocity after atrocity, an image of the beast who roots out true believers, drunk off the blood of the martyrs, that is evil unity. But there is a blessed unity that we have in the Spirit of God. Maybe I should have waited for this sermon until we had communion, because communion is our reminder that our unity doesn't come from having the same opinions. It comes from the blood of Christ. There's the same metaphorical blood that runs through my veins, runs through the veins of somebody across the nation, across the world in Africa, or the person next door if they are a true believer in Jesus Christ and are repentant of their sins. Unity is a wonderful thing. The church is an example of unity. The church is supposed to be unified. 
It's just what we are unified about that matters. In fact, many people, they will, they will try to, if you stand on biblical principles, they say you are, you are attacking unity. No, because we don't need to be unified on things that are not the gospel and of what Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ is. We are not unified another church just because they call themselves a church. We are not unified with people who, who just tear out pages from the scripture so they can do what they want. We are unified in purpose. We are unified in the gospel. We are unified in Christ. And there will be a day when we are unified truly around the throne of God. This story does not have a happily ever after like Ruth did. It has a confused ever after. It ends in confusion, which was actually a mercy. When the end really does happen, it will be shortened. At least the very elect be deceived because they unified. And this is one of the things that makes people wonder, you know, God, not wonder, really believe that God really is coming soon because the language really has, the language barrier really has been broken. And you can go online and you hit translate and you can see what somebody's saying. Now, there still is confusion. In, in an age of information, there's, there's, more, there's more stupidity and ignorance than there's ever been. But it is something to wonder, as we read in Revelation, the unif- unification of humanity under another Nimrod. That ends in confusion, but that's not the end of the story. There is one other event that parallels the Ark and the Tower. That, that event is Pentecost. Not just Pentecost, but the Ascension. In Pentecost, we see what has been broken at Babel is now remade in Pentecost. I, I, I love, this is the thing that really I was like, I need to preach on this this week. Because this is beautiful and this is wonderful. In Acts chapter 2, it tells us that when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, they were all gathered together in one place. The city of sin is now the city of our God. This is salvation from the storm. After Christ is resurrected, when he's about to ascend, he tells his, he tells his disciples and those who are following him to stay in Jerusalem. Jerusalem stands in stark contrast to Babylon. There is a Jerusalem of old. There's a Jerusalem current. And there will be a future Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem. Sorry, as I'm turning to Acts chapter 2 as I'm going along here. It stands in sharp contrast because Babylon is the city of sin and Jerusalem is the city of our God, is the city of righteousness. They are told to stay in Jerusalem to wait from the power that's on high. Their, their salvation in the middle of the storm was coming. The Holy Spirit with power that would, that would empower them to live the life of, a, of an on-fire believer that was coming. Remember Peter? He talked a great game until Christ went to the cross. He's like, I will go and I'll die with you. And then it came to the point, and he's asked three times, do you, do you even know this guy? He's like, no. Finally, he's asked by like a little slave girl, and he cusses. He says, I don't know the man. And he curses. I mean, not cusses. He curses. That's a better word. That's a stronger word. The guy who said, I'm ready to die. Jesus Christ resurrects. He comes to see Peter. And he asks him, Peter, Peter, do you love me? And he doesn't even use the same word as Jesus. He says, I phileo you. I love you like a brother. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Peter has his reinstatement. And then after Pentecost, 
he preaches with boldness. And when it comes for his time for beatings, he takes them with rejoicing. Historically, not biblically, we don't, we don't have this recorded in the scriptures, but historically, Peter, when it came for his time to die for the Lord, requested that they turn his cross upside down because he did not deserve to die the way his Lord died. Because he waited in Jerusalem for the power from on high. And all of a sudden, now he is a dynamo for the Lord. The tower has now been replaced by the upper room. One of the words for the Holy Spirit is the paraclete, the comforter. When you are broken in spirit, who do you seek to make you whole again? Do you run to food? Do you run to others? Do you run to ungodly counsel? Many even, many Christians would say, look to the tower, look towards godless counsel to save you. Pentecost says that we have one who sticks closer than a brother, who comforts us in our time of need. Those in the upper room that day were not looking to themselves and their power to save and to change the world or themselves, but they were, they were waiting for the one who truly could, the promise of the Holy Spirit. The bow has now been replaced with the power of the Spirit. Salvation from justice. At Pentecost, the believers had already trusted in the Lord their God and received salvation from their sins. And at Pentecost, they understood the power of that promise. The Lord added to their number. It says, of those who were being saved, you and I, we have sinned against God. We continue to sin. How can we atone? Do we need to build a tower in order to raise ourselves above the justice of God? Or are we protected in the middle of the storm by the empty cross? The world has all kinds of ways. Take a class. Give to this organization. Become anti-racist, woke, a culture warrior, ruggedly individualistic. Fill in the bank with whatever buzzword we have currently to try to save yourself. It all amounts to trusting in yourself or trusting in the state, culture, or the world. Or you can trust in the one who has made the rainbow and to the one whom the arrow from the rainbow was pointing, the one who took the arrow in our place. That's where peace and the power lie. When the day of Pentecost came, they are all together in one place. Isn't that neat? It's kind of a parallel. So we have the peoples of the earth gathering in Babylon in the city that they were building. But in the New Testament, in, 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 uh, in uh, the book of Acts, we have Christ's people, the disciples. They are all together in one place, but in obedience instead of disobedience. Not to make a name for themselves, but to make a name for the Lord. Not to relish in their own power to make their own power, but to wait for the power of God for witnessing and for the gifts of the Spirit. And what do we see in the end of the Tower of Babel? The languages are confused, but at Pentecost, the languages are understood, for there are those who are there and they are hearing the mysteries, the wonders of God proclaimed in their own language. The curse of Babylon washed away and the power of the cross of Christ. So today, um, worship team, you can come up at this time. We have two choices. The city, the tower, and the bow, or citizenship in a higher kingdom, the empty cross, and the spirit. We can choose to continue to live foolishly, especially for those of us who have been redeemed, continue to live in Babylon, continue to build the tower, or we can realize that we have something so much better than this world can offer. That we can take all of those things, all of those worries, all of the trying to build our kingdom, and we can put that towards building Christ's kingdom. 
That's what this whole year, and when I was writing the sermon this, this week, I was like, this is what this whole year has been about, building Christ's kingdom. Here in Algona, in, in Emmitsburg, in Burt's, in Bancroft, in all of the towns around us, but in all of Iowa, in all of, in all of America, in all of North America, and to the outermost edges of the world, it is what we've been commanded to do. We do so in the unity of the Spirit who is amongst us. We're going to be singing our last song. And this is our time of reflection. This is our time to think, to put this into practice. What we need to put into practice is not building our own kingdom, not trying to make ourselves famous, to make Christ famous. There was this song, um, I remember when I was a teenager, and it always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I had to think about it for a while. But it was from uh, Delirious, who was a fun band. I don't know if they still make music or not. And they had this song, I'm going to be a history maker in this land. And um, I was thinking, it's like, but I don't want to be a history maker. I want Christ to be the history maker. I want this world to forget I ever existed. I just want this world to remember Christ (laughs) and him crucified. I don't want my family to think I'm the great one. I want them to think Christ is the great one. Will you please join us as we sing our final song?